0: Hello, and welcome to this podcast series of the first 50 years of the history of the American Republic. I'm Chris McKenna, and I'm here with my co host, Kathy Conroy.
1: Hi, Chris. Thank you. In our chronology, we're now up to the Philadelphia Convention held in 1787. This meeting lasted for four months and involved many interesting debates around what ultimately became the government we have today. Remember, At the time of the convention, we are a confederation of states, somewhat of a loose coalition of 13 states, all of which have their own currency and militia and their own taxes and regulations. And now, in four months, these delegates will create an entirely new government structure where we become the United States of America, where these 13 states, which still retain their sovereign structure, are now united around certain elements such as a common currency, a common defense, and a common welfare. In our next few podcasts, we are going to highlight the main debates and the compromises that were ultimately reached to gain consensus on certain issues in creating the new government. Understanding these issues and how they were resolved allows one to better understand the three co-equal branches of government we have today and what responsibilities and powers they each have. As you know, Chris, there is a lot of interesting material relative to the Philadelphia Convention, and we decided to have the first podcast about the convention kind of set the stage and give more of an overview of the convention with the subsequent podcasts discussing the main issues and debates.
0: First, one has to appreciate the magnitude of the talent and intellect gathered for this convention. I'm not sure there was any similar gathering of intellect in the history of the world up until that time, nor will there ever likely be a similar gathering. Delegates at this meeting were a veritable who's who of the movers and shakers in the founding of America. People like Alexander Hamilton, one of the more brilliant leaders of the convention, who wound up developing the banking system that we use. Benjamin Franklin, philosopher, diplomat, inventor, George Washington, planter, scientist, military leader. Six of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were at the convention. About half of the delegates had served in the Continental Army. Six of the delegates had served with Washington during the winter at Valley Forge, and five had been with Washington at the final battle at Yorktown.
1: Here are some pre-convention activities that are interesting in our overview, Chris. First upon his arrival in Philadelphia, George Washington and his party receive a hero's escort into town. And George would spend the next four months living in a mansion owned by Robert Morris of Philadelphia. Now, at this point in time, Washington's 55 years old, and I'm sure he really thought that he'd be retired to his plantation in Virginia. If you recall, he'd spent a good six years in the war and then at the end of the war in 1783 got decommissioned and went back to his plantation in Virginia. So now it's 1787, about five years, four or five years later, and he's coming to Philadelphia to attend this convention, mostly at the urging of James Madison. However, George knew firsthand that there were problems in the Confederation of States, in the structure. And one of the issues that greatly troubled him was that many of his soldiers that fought in the Revolutionary War never received their promised compensation, largely because there was no central currency and the financial condition of the states varied greatly. So upon his arrival into town, Washington, a true gentleman and diplomat, immediately reaches out to Ben Franklin and arranges a meeting with him. Now at this time in the history of the country, George Washington and Ben Franklin are the most well-known figures in the country. Washington, for obvious reasons, he had won the battle against Great Britain in the war, and Franklin was just a revered philosopher, inventor, diplomat. If you recall, Franklin was living in Paris for some period of time during the Revolutionary War, and the French loved Franklin. And Franklin was the one who actually convinced the French to enter into an alliance with the United States against Great Britain and help us in the war, which was, I think, instrumental in the, um, the states actually prevailing in the war thanks to the help, the significant help provided by France. So the year prior to the convention, Madison is very busy sketching out his ideas for a new government structure. Interestingly, prior to the convention, Franklin is actually busy with his delegates in Philadelphia talking about a Republican government and having discussion groups with them.
0: The convention was scheduled to begin on May 14th, however, on that day, only the delegates from Pennsylvania and Virginia were present in Philadelphia and a minimum of seven states was needed for the convention to begin. So, while they waited for the delegates from the other states to arrive, the Virginia and Pennsylvania delegation worked together and started to review Madison's draft for a new government structure, which ultimately became known as the Virginia Plan. Both the Virginia and the Pennsylvania delegates were the most prepared when the convention actually began. Eleven days after the convention was scheduled to begin, Friday, May 25th, delegates representing seven states had arrived in Philadelphia to officially begin the convention. Today we might find this a bit unusual that people would show up eleven days late. But remember, the mode of travel and traveling conditions back then were primitive by today's standards. The only mode of transportation was horseback and carriage, roads weren't great, and many towns were separated by wilderness. And any problems encountered during the journey, be it bad weather, an equipment problem, a medical problem, it could take days to get them rectified. So the convention begins. The first order of business of the convention was to elect a presiding officer, which everyone knew would be George Washington, elect a convention secretary, and to appoint a committee to draft the rules of the assembly. The rules of the assembly drafted by this committee were very interesting. Some highlights are, delegates would vote by state. Each state had one vote, and the majority of states had required a quorum to be present for their voting to count. So, however many delegates a state had, a majority of them would carry the state's vote. Nobody was to record any individual votes and any delegate could request the convention to revisit an issue that may have previously been decided. These last two rules were critical in allowing delegates to freely change their mind if they were so inclined after hearing various debate points. Nothing discussed at the meeting was to be discussed outside of the meeting. No speaking to the press, no speaking to the public, not even speaking among themselves where they might be overheard. This was often referred to as the secrecy rule. And to ensure that the press couldn't snoop around the outside of the building, the windows were kept shut all during the Philadelphia summer. All delegates would rise when Washington, the presiding officer, entered the room and took his seat on the dais and when he left the room at the end of the day. Although history tells us that a few delegates kept some very general notes about the meeting in their diaries, James Madison was the official note-taker at the meeting, and they all agreed that his notes would not be made public until after the last one of the delegates to the convention died. Interestingly, the last delegate to the Philadelphia convention was James Madison when he died at age 85. The secrecy rule was so important that Madison is quoted as saying, no constitution ever would have been adopted by the convention if the debate had been public. So, some high-level notes about the Virginia Plan. Madison's initial plan for the restructure of the government, referred to as the Virginia Plan, differed from the current structure of the Confederation of States in that most of both of the legislative and judicial responsibilities were currently being executed by the Congress within the Confederation. The Virginia Plan began to divide these various responsibilities into different divisions or branches Where some of the existing responsibilities would be moved out of the Congress and into this executive level branch as one way to cure the problem of the confederation structure. The Virginia plan proposed the need for some type of national overlay government to that of the existing 13 states with this national or federal government performing certain functions common to and uniting the states, such as currency and national defense. The Virginia Plan also proposed a bicameral Congress made up of a lower house of representatives and a smaller, more elite, Senate whose members would serve as some sort of cross-check to the lower house. However, each chamber, the House and the Senate, would be equal. Thus both chambers had to agree on legislation. And the formula for representation of those two chambers would be proportional to population. And finally, the Virginia Plan included a judiciary with upper and lower courts. Thus, the Virginia Plan presented the outline of a government structure comprised of three distinct branches. Given the Virginia Plan was a significant change to the existing structure of the Confederation, the number of delegates were concerned as to whether they had the authority from their state legislature to create a new government structure versus simply tweaking the existing Articles of Confederation. Nonetheless, enough of the delegates did not want to have this technical point derail their larger objective, that of sorting out how to fix the existing problems inherent in the Articles of Confederation. And the meeting not only carried on, but it lasted for a marathon four months.
1: One of the most interesting elements of the convention, Chris, was that it was all about equal power. From the beginning of the convention, one of the biggest concerns among the delegates was what state or states were going to lose power if the existing government was to be restructured. This was especially a concern of the small states who feared that they would essentially get gobbled up by the bigger states. In fact, At the beginning of the convention, George Reed from Delaware, who you might remember was referenced in one of our prior podcasts. Reed was a no vote for independence, and his colleague was a yes vote. There were a total of three delegates from Delaware. The third delegate was not present at the meeting. He was the ill Caesar Rodney, and he was sent for to come to the meeting cast his yes vote so that the majority of the delegates from Delaware would be voting yes for independence. This is the same George Reed now who's at the Philadelphia convention and he steps up at the beginning of the convention and says that Delaware has told their delegates that they could not vote for any policy that would alter each state having equal representation. So this opening salvo really sets the stage for all of the discussions that will follow and the debates so much centered around power and who's going to get more of it and who's going to end up with less of it, perhaps, in this restructuring of the government. And it was such an important issue that it was at the root of every major discussion and decision made in terms of structuring the Congress, how votes were apportioned among the House of Representatives and the Senate, and the limited powers to be given to this newly created federal government. A few fun facts about the convention. The delegates worked six days a week Monday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. There were open floor debates and there was a lot of committee work. Many committees were formed to debate certain issues and report back to the, to the larger floor of delegates. At night, the delegates dined together and they socialized, which allowed them to form some new friendships Most of them rented rooms at the few boarding houses in town. The prominent ladies in Philadelphia society would invite individuals for evening teas. George Washington attended many of these evening teas during the week, and he accepted invitations to attend concerts and plays. He also made the rounds eating supper with the various delegates. So the delegates spent a lot of time together, and the interpersonal relationships they developed... Really contributed to them taking the time to really understand each other's viewpoint, all because they were working for a common goal. In my opinion, there's no doubt that these interpersonal relationships were the glue that allowed them to build consensus and reach compromises that enabled a new government structure to be created. About five weeks into the convention, the delegates are at a stalemate regarding the formula for representation in this newly envisioned House of Representatives as proposed within the Virginia Plan. And they take a break for a while to celebrate the 4th of July. Most of the delegates remained in Philadelphia because it would have just been too long of a trip to attempt to go home and then return. But a few who lived nearby actually left and went back to their own homes for a a few days. Now, at this point, Washington is beginning to seriously despair that this stalemate on the formula for representation in the House of Representatives is not going to be resolved. And that the convention is not going to succeed in ultimately fixing the problems of the existing government structure. This is how big of a challenge this was in devising a representation formula that all the states could agree to. And the convention literally was at an impasse at the time of the July 4th holiday.
0: Well, for the 4th of July, the city of Philadelphia throws a big parade and many parties. The parties helped to lift the mood of the delegates. Everyone knew they needed to come up with a new system, but they just had not figured out how to do it yet. With a lot of debate and compromises, as we talk about in our next podcast, by the end of July, the delegates have created and agreed to the three-fifths compromise, and by early September, all other compromises and trade-offs on the structure and representation formula for the House of Representatives has been resolved. Also, during August and September, the delegates finished tackling exactly what powers would be retained in the Senate chamber that had historically been performed by the existing Congress, and what powers would be given to the new executive branch of government. One of the most difficult issues to be decided within the new executive branch was how to elect the president of this branch of government. We'll also discuss that in more detail in an upcoming podcast. The convention delegates realized they needed to pull all of their agreements and the structure of this new government into a more polished document. And our founding fathers made extensive use of committees, so they decided to form a Committee of Style and Arrangement, It was appointed in early September to create this polished up Constitution document for the delegates to review. This committee had the job of taking all of the somewhat disjointed amendment and resolutions agreed to among the delegates and condensing them into a more polished and logically coherent document without changing any of the agreed content. The committee accomplished this task in less than two weeks and produced a four-page document that was presented to the convention on September 9th. The only other debate that arose at that time was whether a bill of individual rights should be included in the new constitution. Again, this was related to the concern of the anti-federalists those delegates who were very concerned about this executive branch of government to be created becoming too large and too powerful and eroding the rights of both the states and the individual citizen. With four months already spent at the convention, many delegates were fatigued and there was just not enough energy or support among the majority of delegates to consider any more amendments to the document. After a little more debate, no further amendments were made to the document.
1: So on Saturday, September the 15th, all 11 states with a voting quorum unanimously approve the Constitution, and a signing ceremony on a parchment copy of the document is set for Monday, September the 17th, 1787. New York could not vote because it had lost its quorum when several delegates left the convention in July in protest. Of some of the compromise solutions reached in the legislative branch and Rhode Island never attended the convention. Now interestingly, while the majority of the Virginia delegation votes to approve the Constitution, a few of Washington's colleagues from Virginia voted against approval. They wanted a bill of rights included and they did not like some of the implied taxation powers given to Congress and thus they did not sign the final document. So even Washington experienced a certain level of dissent among some of his Virginia colleagues regarding the final Constitution that came out of the convention. In the final days of the convention, the convention directs Washington to keep all the records of the meeting and to not release them until asked to do so by a new Congress under the new Constitution. Thus, the inference is that if the Constitution is not approved, these documents would never be released, and they'd only be released if the Constitution was approved and the new Congress asked to do so. So, once again, the delegates understood that the Constitution they had drafted needed to be ratified by the majority of states in order for the new government to be formed, And they clearly understood that much public debate and discussion would begin as part of the process of ratifying or not ratifying the Constitution. And to that end, they did not want any of their opinions or debates to become public and to possibly be used out of context by the press. The convention ended by passing the following resolutions one that the constitution formed by the convention would be given to the congress in the existing federation and the congress was asked to then forward that to each state for ratification and next if the majority of states and they needed nine ratify the constitution then there would be a time set for choosing the state electors who would elect the president of the newly formed executive branch, a time set for electing a president of the executive branch, and a date set for the new government to begin. At the signing ceremony on Monday, September the 17th, Washington signs first and then 38 other signers begin with the northernmost states working their way south. History records that the delegates have dinner and they begin their journeys home, and the Constitution for the new government then begins its journey toward ratification among the states, all of which will be covered in one of our future podcasts.
0: Now that we've set the stage with an overview of the Philadelphia Convention, our next two podcasts will discuss the debates and the compromises reached on the legislative branch of government and on the executive branch.